Welcome to A Moment of Change, brought to you by On Purpose London. 2020 has brought significant political, social and economic disruption to many areas of society. It is a moment of change that will lead to fundamental shifts in the world going forward, for better and for worse. In this short podcast series, we will speak with leaders working in various areas within the social and environmental impact sectors to find out what impact 2020 has had on them and on their challenges, both professionally and personally. On Purpose is a non-profit organisation and community that believes in putting purpose before profits as a way to create an economy that works for all. Associates from the On Purpose programme are asking the questions in each episode of A Moment of Change. Over to them. My name is Rakesh and I'll be your host for today. In this episode, we will be speaking with three inspiring organisers of mutual age groups about their personal experiences and learnings in organising on behalf of their communities and their hopes for the future. Within the outbreak of COVID in 2020, we've seen the genesis of a new wave of mutual age groups around the world, pooling volunteers and resources within local communities to help one another through a time of crisis. These groups tend to be hyper-local, self-organising and generally non-hierarchical, composed of volunteers in the local community. These days, they tend to organise using social messaging apps, but the concept of mutual aid has existed long before WhatsApp. History has shown us the power of mutual aid in the friendly societies of 19th century Europe, the Black Panthers free breakfast programme in the US in late 1960s, and disaster relief groups in the wake of the Puebla earthquake in Mexico in 2017, amongst many other examples. According to the online publication, Third Sector, currently in the UK, more than 4,250 mutual aid groups exist at present, ranging from just a handful of members to the largest groups having more than a thousand. I found the numbers of groups amazing, and some of us have been wondering, could the global COVID pandemic be a turning point in our connectedness to our communities and to our neighbours in need. To give us the thoughts, I'd like to introduce our panellists. We have Kathy, who's a tech entrepreneur and consultant. She founded the Greenwich Mutual Aid Group during the COVID crisis this year. We have Lily, who's a nanny and is now head of mentoring for the Don's Local Action Group, operating in Merton, Kingston and Wandsworth. And we have Blake, who is a parent, who before COVID would be found blowing impressively giant bubbles in front of the London Eye. He started and helped organise a local mutual aid group in the Limehouse and Shadwell area in late March of this year over WhatsApp. So welcome, Kathy, Lily and Blake. It's great to have you all here. And just a note, just while we wish we could be in the same room, unfortunately, due to the current COVID conditions, we are each recording in separate rooms. So slightly less than ideal sound conditions, but we'll do our best. But I'm sure we're going to hear about more significant challenges faced by our panellists during these times. So to start us off, Kathy, would you be able to tell us a little bit about what a mutual aid group is and what is their purpose, particularly for some of our listeners who may be unfamiliar with this? I think you gave a very lovely introduction to mutual aid and its history. I guess it's like in the beginning of March, it, um, mutual aid as a concept just really blew up all over the globe. As we all know, there has been a pandemic in 2020. When it was announced as a pandemic on March the 11th by WHO, a lot of different people and different in different countries that they are left without support system. They might be shielded at home. They might be, um, you know, needing extra support or um, feeling ill, um, have to self isolate, and that same thing happened in the UK. So. Most of the mutual aid groups, uh, they have been formed with local volunteers and with the neighbors to be able to support all the different people in the neighborhood. I think that's the best way I would describe it. And why did you get involved in mutual aid personally? I was actually volunteering for this um, tech platform called the Coronavirus Tech Handbook which is a, a wonderful kind of wiki resources around coronavirus, which has been set up by Edward, who is from the New Speak House in London, who has always done a lot of this kind of social impact projects, like things that need to happen, but not a lot of people are doing it, like gathering all the resources in one place. Um, and 
through helping with that in the very early days, um, I discovered the concept of mutual aid, um, which at that time was just, you know, one link on the whole site. And that's when I realized that there wasn't one in my local area. And coming from my technology background and knowing that some of the shared resources from the other groups um, and all of that, that I knew it would be quite quite easy and quick for me to set up the infrastructure. So um, I thought it was a good civil duty of mine um, to to set it up, and it just sort of blew up. And how about yourself, Blake? What was your um, reason for getting involved? I mean, I guess the people in my real life who I would speak to, they um, they didn't really believe coronavirus was a thing. And the people who I would meet on the street, most people um, back in February and March just didn't think that it was going to be something that we had to deal with. So I had to go online. And online, I found people that also thought it was a thing and wanted to do something about it. And yeah, saw the National Food Services call out for mutual aid groups. And um, there wasn't one in my area, similar to Kathy, just set one up in it. And Lily? Our group are very present in the community and they we stand outside supermarket stalls and at the peak um, when all the supermarket shelves were completely sparse, um, I was regularly donating to the stall and after my third trip I asked them if they needed a hand and, and then they added me to the WhatsApp group and it's just blown from there. I think when I joined there was 100 um, people in the WhatsApp group and it's just blown massively from there now. And I think just almost just hearing from um, the sort of snapshot you've given, I, th- I think there's some interesting differences between all three of your groups. So it'll be really useful if you could provide us an overview of the structure and also, I guess, the, the journey and evolution of your mutual aid groups. Um, how, how did they start? How, how did they develop? Well, we are based in Southwest London and um, Dog Local Action Group was set up by three football fans and AFC Wimbledon football fans. I won't bore you with the AFC Wimbledon story, but it's a really special story that is a fan-based club that is really passionate, really loyal. We break records. Um, AFC fans do incredible things for the community and just really present. They've got great energy. And when the pandemic started, um, the 21st of March, uh, three LC fans, Xavier, Craig and Cormac, set up Don's Local Action Group. And they just set a table up outside one supermarket stall in um, one supermarket in Wimbledon, um, asking for donations as people were shopping and to redistribute to those in need. And that was on the 21st of March, on Saturday the 21st of March. And by Sunday, we were able to deliver to 70 homes, a weekly food package um, for families, people in isolation. And then it just blew. It spread the supermarket stores, our presence, our energy just grew in Merton and then it grew to Kingston and then it grew to Wandsworth. And now we've got a visible presence in all three boroughs with a very unique relationship with um, the community because we're very present and we're really engaging. And we, you know, there's loads of blue and yellow for the AFC colours everywhere. So definitely, I think we've got a unique energy, which is great. And how about yours, Cathy? So our Facebook group was set up on March the 13th and by March the 16th it was when the social distancing rule first got into place in the UK where it says everybody had to stay at home. Um, But by March the 17th we were already operationalized because we had a couple of different group of people that started leafletting um, so we would go cover every single street and then put leaflets to the mailbox in order to get to the people because we were worried that it was at the time that some people are already shielding at home that they wouldn't be able to leave their house. Um, and from there on, it really grew very rapidly. We had a thousand people join the group within 24 hours and it just continually growing. Um, we didn't think it would be it would grow in such a rapid mode in both the response from the community and also the demand from the community. Um, we have learned leafletting is a very good way to be able to reach the people who need to help. 
we were operationalizing four days. So it means by March the 17th that we were triaging and operationalized with um, supporting the local community, which is like picking up um, prescription, uh, going to buy groceries, etc. And as the demand and also the supply of volunteers and the passion of the volunteer grew, we knew that, um, and also learning from the other mutual aid groups, we knew that we need to have a little bit of structure in place to a certain degree because I think we've seen a lot of different volunteering schemes such as the NHS one. There's probably more people who wanted to volunteer um, than the the speed of being able to find the people who need help because it was, everybody was scrambling at the beginning. Um, so we kind of set up different systems um, so that we have um, a, a different way to do triage. We have a system to be able to track um, where we have leaflet, we have a system to be able to map the volunteers on the map. We have a volunteer management system just so that now we, we will be able to continue supporting. And at that time, we had already started talking to our local borough. Um, the Royal Borough of Greenwich was always a very, you know, we we're partners in this. But um, like the, the local government support system was not set up until maybe three three weeks or so after. So within that three weeks, we covered quite a lot of ground. Um, um, I think at the, the, the most, we were doing 30 triages, new triages a day. And um, I think it's like 30 probably, you know, ongoing requests um, throughout the borough. We had like the WhatsApp group just, you know, organic group. Um, so the idea is that we set up the group as a centralized way to um, support everybody in a sense that you don't need to have you know seven different type of volunteer management system um, and a lot of times you need people from different parts of the borough to support each other so the idea is that we have a centralized place for all these resources for the hyper local groups um, we have about 24 whatsapp groups around the different neighborhoods um, then that would be able to support them um, which was, um, in hindsight, a very good way to do it um, in our circumstances because um, there are the Royal Ball of Greenwich is um, quite interesting that they're a very, very nice and very rich area, let's say, and uh, there are definitely areas that need a little bit more help. Um, if we were looking for food donation, we definitely needed that um, extra help from different parts of the borough to, for the donation effort to happen. Um, I guess uh, when we set up, um, it was important to me that it was not hierarchical um, and that we did things efficiently. And so, uh, yeah, it grew quite quickly and um, trying to manage that without hierarchy is difficult. Um, but in the end, no one was really above anyone else. Sometimes uh, one person, for example, um, spearheaded the setting up of a food bank. We didn't all have to be involved in that. If We all couldn't have helped if he needed help, but um, we didn't like standing in his way. Um, so it was pretty free. And I think it, we benefited greatly from that. Everyone felt able to participate. We did the tasks that you guys are talking about, like uh, getting food and prescriptions, uh, walking dogs. And I guess uh, we noticed that local divisions, local politics. Um, in the first lockdown, kind of people kept them hidden for a bit. Um, certainly for the first three, four weeks that Kathy mentioned before, um, there was any real response to corona besides mutual aid groups. Um, and even afterwards, for a while, people stopped fighting about the normal things they normally fight about and just had to get on with it. Um, I guess we did find there was some people who had the attitude that we shouldn't be doing this, that we should let like the NHS app do it or some uh, official charity do it or things like that. Um, but at the end of the day, those people weren't doing it or weren't able to do it effectively for everyone. Our group operated without ego in a way that I've never seen before. And I'm not sure if can be replicated because no one knew each other. No one sees each other. When someone does a good deed, no one sees it. So 
you know, all the common ego-linked reasons to do those things are, are gone. Um, and people were able to just get stuff done. There was one local group, um, Royal Foundation of St. Catherine, that, uh, they were great. They didn't demand anything from us. They didn't try to take, take control of us or do anything. They were just like, what can we do to help? Whatever we have is yours, you need it. Um, and in the end, after many months, uh, we ended up signing an MOU with them to basically become their volunteer wing because we didn't have to compromise to do so. Like we could be exactly how we were. Just now um, we were under the RFS, the Royal Foundation of St. Catherine's um, name, and it allowed us to then get funding to set up a food bank, as well as do other things going forward. And yeah, I guess going forward, we didn't want this just to be um, like a, a blip. Like we didn't want this just to be a reaction to Corona, but um, to try to do something with this reaction to Corona. Um, and I guess being a part of RFSK now, it kind of allows us to do that because we're not limited by what we were set up in reaction to, but by our imagination. <laughs> I think it's so, so inspiring to hear you all speak. And one thing that sort of stands out to me is firstly, the, I guess the response, like the fact that so many people responded and wanted to volunteer and wanted to help out. And secondly, the speed at which your groups were able to, you know, scale up and take that demand both from outside in terms of need, but also the demand from the volunteers wanting to help out and match that. So the question I have for you is, why do you think there were so many people willing to help out and trying to you know, actively find that way, the channel to do so? I mean, I don't know, guesses. I, people say when you have kids, something changes in your brain permanently. And I, feel, I felt like that happened somehow. Something changed in many people's brains with Corona, where, in, in my own, where all of a sudden um, relationships that I had allowed to fall by the wayside Suddenly, I, I wanted to, um, those became important to me. Talking to um, family who weren't nearby, taking a greater role in my church, and different things. Um, I felt I had to connect urgently with everyone I possibly cared about because I had no idea what was going to happen. There's many things our society just has undervalued. Um, people who care for the elderly, people who look after children, people who clean your house, people who take out your trash and deliver packages. Um, and I guess we've all seen that we've kind of undervalued those that, that labor. <laughs> At the beginning, it's like, because it's like, I'm sure that you guys have seen in the other mutual aid groups as well, in the beginning, there were actually a, a very huge influx of volunteers it's also related to that people were starting to get furloughed so people had quite a lot of time on their hands and then because they had quite a lot of time on their hands um it was the beginning of the lockdown was before we all knew how to do lockdowns so they really wanted to do something and we have noticed in a lot of our volunteers it helped them feel more empowered and to deal with the uncertainty of the lockdown which was a very emotional thing um, especially before all the different um, official responses were in place, that it was very nice for the volunteers to feel like that they are doing something, um, that which I think is a, a very important kind of community spirit that has developed in this crisis. Yeah, I mean, even me on a personal level, I would agree um, that I definitely felt like I felt really unsettled when we heard Boris's announcement. When I joined the Don's Local Action Group and I saw what they were doing and where they were going and all the different areas that they were supporting the community, it definitely made me feel like more settled because I was able to give back to people in need and people that were scared and unsure about what was going to happen. There I am as a fit like nanny who I've got incredibly supportive pet, um, employees who were happy to continue to pay me while the world sorted itself out. I felt that, like the least I could do was give something back. And then I think once you start, it's a bit of a domino effect. Once you see how an operation works and the effects 
and the, the things that the positive effects that you're doing on the community you just want to be more sucked in like the don's local action group um it took two weeks for us to launch our keep kids connected project which is this is the same concept of asking for donations of devices and laptops um, and partnering up with schools and then redistributing them to kids who are dealing with um, digital poverty and are struggling and parents who are struggling and then even things like that projects like that would then engage different types of volunteers volunteers who maybe didn't have the time to stand outside schools but they're tech wizards so they can sit at home and fix mended laptops and then similar when we launched our furniture collective as well like there are different areas that engage different people and like similar with like mentoring although I've been around from week three having all these different areas that we want to branch out into to support the community engages these volunteers because they want to do something and they want to give back after seeing such a pants year and I think it's like once you have seen as a, as a volunteer is sort of like in the front line of facing the impact in the society that once you have seen what are the some of the dire situation that people are in and you've seen some of the cases it's like you really feel feel the need to keep going as well it's like it's, it's not what they tell you in the news it's like what people really experience throughout the lockdown it's very very different from what you see in the news so once you see that uh, you kind of feel like you need to keep going especially um so for our group for example it's like i think at the very beginning like week three probably we set up a fleet of drivers uh, for food bank because food bank was just so swamped and then their center had to close down so then we need to we basically just help move our volunteers to be able to support their operation so then that people can still get food it's gotten to the point where it's not just the community that was needing help. It's also all the other third sector, which we have always partnered with to help them with their with their operation, um, you know, to make sure that people get the food. The food bank had the food. They just need to get the food to people, for example. Um, and I think that is just something is um, now I have learned the third sector world. The, the, it's, um, it's called casual volunteering. Usually you have to sign up to volunteer for food bank. You just sign up and you have training, et cetera, for a very long term. It's not very often that people can do casual volunteering where you dip in and out and you can do different kind of tasks with different kind of organization, which I thought was quite quite um, refreshing for people to, to become volunteers. Yeah, I agree with that. I just want to add one little thing on to Kathy, like you saying, like once you see it, it kind of like almost opens a bit of a can of worms. And I think it definitely does. I don't drive and I roped my sister and my mum into driving me around to do deliveries. And when my mum got involved, that was it. She became a DLAG member as well because it really does open your eyes to things and seeing things and for her to see um, like elderly people so scared. And she joined in, I think, after like a few months as well. And that really kind of woke my mum's eyes up a bit, and like she's like on board and and part of the team as well. So it definitely, I think, seeing things open your eyes to things that you would have never thought about if you weren't out there on the front line and having a look and experiencing it. And you mentioned um, some of these, you know, particular experiences. That I mean, do do you have any particular anecdotes um, or stories that you'd be able to share to sort of bring that to life for our listeners? There are so many people in isolation and it's not just elderly either. There's so many people that are, that are scared. You've got mental health as well. You don't just have to be old to be scared. Like you can be young and be freaked out too. Um, but this particular one, his name is John and he is just adorable. We've been delivering to him for quite some time now. And um, he has been living in a mould infested Flat. his flat um the above had a flood a few years ago and the council haven't been as on board to to tackle it and he struggles with chest infections and things like that and one of our drivers um who have been delivering to him have built a relationship with him and they have got onto the council and they have put pressure on the council and now they're rehousing him in temporary accommodation and they're going to sort out his mould because of the push that we've that the group have had um, and the impact that the group have had um, and the relationship that we've got with the council as well. Like we were able to help this man who's been struggling with this for five years. This was pre-COVID and we were able to change his life. And there are so many stories like that. There's one man who lives up in Beckenhamshire, I think it is, 
forgive me if I've got that really wrong, but he's an AFC Wimbledon fan. And we've got a volunteer called Rob who drives all the way up there. It's nowhere near in our area. And he delivers to him weekly boxes and goes and gets his prescriptions and whatever he needs. At one point, he was isolating for, I think it was 14 weeks. He hadn't been out of his house. He didn't have a TV, doesn't have a TV and he doesn't have radio. And Rob would go up there, have a little chin wag with him every week. And it would really make um, Dave, is our client, that's his name. Um, it would really make his week. But Rob went the extra mile and there's an amazing group called Give a Song who formed in COVID, who were going around and singing. They're a group of musicians who sing to people in isolation. And Rob organised this. So there's these beautiful moments that come from these really sad stories because we've all come together. So. We have we have similar one as well, so um, it's like sort of like to to think about what does the care actually mean. So in the beginning, a lot of people would call us and um, they would they say they just want to register their name with us just in case. But that, that was a really nice psychological assurance. Um, our volunteers will actually do regular check in with the person once they register, just to say, hey, do you still need something? Um, and a lot of relationships had developed from there on. So, for example, I still go for <laughs> weekly walks with an, an old lady who's quite sufficient. She's like sufficient by herself. Um, but then I still just do walks with her. We never, I never, you know, bought any groceries for her or anything. And it's like that community friendship. But we also have more extreme cases in a sense. It's like this this asylum seeker family that they somehow haven't been caught by the system. They're in the in-between state. When they first came to it, they needed emergency food. So then we dispatch emergency food to them, I think once or twice. And throughout this whole last six months, I think four or five um, different volunteers, myself included, have had interaction with the family. Um, it's our like well-known kind of case in a way because um, I think one of our volunteers was helping them with their um, different status application. Um, you know, we get some different kind of donation for their home. I drove over um, a bucket of my apples in my backyard so she would make um, apple curry. She's from Sri Lanka. Um, I, I, I'm, you know, so we, we regular visit them. Some of the volunteers have um, gone to their backyard to have, when it was nicer, you know, um, gone to their backyard to have home-cooked meal with them as well. So there's quite a lot of this kind of edge groups in a sense that don't, don't usually get integrated into the community, got introduced into the community. I think the father recently, one of our local volunteers, um, he introduced the father to the local cricket club for example. Um, that is really um, a community spirit. That's not really COVID related. It's that maybe the food part was, but maybe it's more, it's larger than what COVID really is. It's like, and then it's the systematic impact after going into lockdown. I mean, uh, there are good and bad stories. A more difficult story we had was, um, I mean, I guess in the beginning, we thought we would set this up for people that couldn't go outside not particularly like vulnerable people, just people, I mean, for anyone, but we, we would expect, and we were told early on by um, the local council and other organizations that there's kind of like three tiers. There's like the shield tier, which should be taken care of by the government. And then there's like vulnerable people, which should be taken care of by the third sector. And then there's just totally fine people who just happen to be in isolation. And they're meant to be the people that we look after because we're like amateurs which is cool, that's fine. If they can do their job, that's great. It's less work for us to do, but they couldn't. And um, it was the stuff that we weren't supposed to do, what we ended up doing a lot of. And some of that stuff was crazy. There was one guy who was like 80, he has COPD. He got released from the hospital. He went into the hospital because he had a COPD attack. Um, and they discovered while there he had Corona. Um, and so they said he's too old to use a ventilator, so they just sent him home. Um, he called me up because uh, we had been talking and uh, they didn't prepare him whatsoever for isolation or tell him he needed to isolate now that he had Corona. Um, they didn't explain anything about it. So I had to just go on government guidance and like read to him what the government guidance said. He was in the hospital for three days though. So when he got back home, 
there was a ton of garbage everywhere, rubbish. And his rubbish, you're meant to like store it in a place that it isn't exposed to Corona for three days before you throw it out. This was the guidance at the time. He doesn't have a garden. He doesn't have a porch. So he had no place to store it. <laughs> and it took me and the counselor like two weeks, the counselor two weeks, just to get this guy's trash picked up. Meanwhile, he's like walking around his flat, whipping a towel around to keep the flies away. And I mean, like, there was a risk that this guy was going to die surrounded by his own rubbish. It was crazy. But then, better story, there was uh, growth is this, it's like a, a place for homeless people to sleep in normal times. And it's like five different churches in Tower Hamlets. And um, uh, one of the churches will be um, a place for them to sleep that night and then the next night. Well, under Corona, that was not possible. And uh, they contacted us and uh, they found a place to, to sleep, actually, but they didn't have food. Um, and so for a week, um, our group, we cooked 25 meals for lunch and for dinner um, and provided it for them. It's super sweet. <laughs> yeah, I think those stories are both sad and heartwarming at, at the same time. What, what, what do you think were the key factors in enabling success for your group? And also, I guess, what was the most challenging part as well? Oh, success is a weird word to say in a pandemic, don't you think? Um, we have always prided ourselves, as I said, we, we have a sort of like, you know, the flakes group, it's, a, it's very non-hierarchical, but we do have a steering group because there's a lot of admin stuff, you know, the upkeep of these things that we do um, and then that we invite everyone to join as well. And then we have like people just stand up and then be able to do things. I think um, the challenges is that throughout the last six months, probably very different from the month to the month, to be really honest. At the beginning is probably everybody was scrambling, like us, everybody, the third sector, local government, overall, everyone, everybody's scrambling and trying to figure out what to do. And a very simple principle that we always had is that we need to be able to evaluate our ability to uncover and discover um, and support the community, the needs of the community. Um, so that is the only thing that we should be able to do inside to know what the needs of the community is and how we actually support it and so it, it forces us to be very adaptive and I think the situation is also we have to be very adaptive we never knew what was going to happen the week after so that is a like in the more formation type of way that we have always been very adaptive that we do different kind of things throughout the last six months um, I think that's probably the success, um, you know, the, the speed that we would be able to um, put everything together was definitely a key thing because I think the first couple of weeks was definitely the hardest for everyone. Um, um, and when things got a little better, um, you know, the operation was different as well. But still, it was more about how do we actually um, keep supporting people in a different way. Uh, which you know later on like mid lockdown we had we started doing more of the kind of activities uh, for people's mental health that uh, we would organize music sessions we have people go out to the street of like a very famous old street at Beatle Street I think um do singing on the street and um we would um connect between people who have like a green thumb so that, that they can exchange ideas which we still run right now called the virtual allotment um so it's a different kind of community initiative like started to happen but that is really more so that that was the need of the community so then that we've we found a way to do it very quickly um and then in the last couple months i think because the volunteers start to go back to work and so the availability of volunteers are different and summer months people are out going for holiday etc it's like our coverage become it was a little spottier definitely but um but because everything has come down quite a lot and then with the local government support you know it's like things are not as dire uh, for sure um which is a good time for us to think about how do we actually operate, keep going forward in a very sustainable way? So that was a nice break in a sense. But 
all in all, that we have been very adaptive, and that is something I think that determined the success of being able to support everyone. I think biggest challenge we probably had, I don't know, the actual pandemic itself. <laughs> um, I think for a lot of other groups, they probably would say it's like, oh, the food access and the resources to food has always been quite difficult. But in our in in Greenwich, we have a GCDA, which was um, always around, you know, surrounding food, uh, what they do. And they basically cook up all the different community meal. And because we have a very good partnership in the um, local borough that we we could get food from them as well, um, which is the same food that the local government was giving out. So that was quite quite um, quite quite a good thing to lift that weight because I know a lot of people was um, you know facing the food problem. Um, but our challenge was probably just more around, you know, as the volunteer, um, so going back to work, how do we keep supporting the community? It's like, it would be quite difficult um, to do the, the kind of effort that we did for leafletting now, again, um, it is quite, quite labor intensive. Um, so hopefully that it's not gonna, if there is a definite second lockdown, hopefully it's not as bad as the first time. I'd say our successes could also have been our like struggles as well in a way because I'd say that uh, part of our success is we had, had like over 1,500 volunteers registered with us and it was quite a big, I know Cathy you mentioned you had a really vast amount of volunteers joining as well, I mean that's quite overwhelming and that can be a great success because people are so engaged and they want to join in. But then there were times when um, I like when people going back to work because of the way that uh, our group works, we still shift standing outside supermarket stalls. And we usually do that in two shifts of three hours, which means we need to find four people per shift and per day per supermarket stall. And um, when it was in a peak lockdown, that was that was quite easy to to fill sometimes there were days where we'd be up till quite late trying to fill shifts for the next day we had 22 supermarkets at our peak so if you can imagine how many shifts that were to fill across the three boroughs but so that's where it can be a bit of a paradox that our volunteer base is, was a great success then because we blew so much um there were times when people would go back to work where we'd still struggle um to fill our, our supermarket shifts but that was all okay. That never made us feel panicked or anything. We've always been very aware that we were initially a COVID response team, a COVID response organisation. And then as we started to notice more areas in the community that needed help and we started to adapt to become a more permanent and sustainable organisation, more structures needed to be put in place and things like that. That could also be said to be a bit of a challenge, but then also a bit of a success as well, because that's when all the volunteers were able to get involved and be engaged and quite like the other two groups as well like there's not a lot of ego like the three co-founders don't even really like to call themselves co-founders they're very much like it's all about the volunteers the volunteers are amazing it's the volunteers that make this work and they're really engaging and you know in similar to to Blake group where people can like throw in their ideas it's very much like that like I start my journey with DLAG I started um just outside the supermarket store, wormed my way into a hub, did deliveries, prescription deliveries, phone line teams, welcoming new volunteers. And like, as the group started to expand, you needed to put teams in place, like onboarding teams and like buddy teams. So there's always a point of contact. So there is more structure and there's a flow for, for everybody to make it sustainable and successful. I mean, all together, just to pull out my figures, we have delivered over 35,000 weekly food boxes to homes in need and then 87,500 weekly food boxes to local organisations and food banks. We've delivered over 150 furniture appliances to homes. We've delivered over 800 laptops to people and like I mentioned, we've got that over 1,500 registered volunteers. And a bit like what Tuffy mentioned as well, the the flexible volunteering, I think, is a great benefit because it means that people can tap in and out. Because we've got people who would have booked shifts with us on our portal system back in May, but then they've gone back to work. And now that they're back settled in work, they can just jump back onto our portal system, see where there are some supermarket shifts or hub shifts or phone line shifts, and then they can jump back on board when and how it suits them and their lives. And I think that that is, yeah, definitely a success at keeping us 
going, I'd say. But yeah, and then like we've got other things that like I've got back to um engaging all the volunteers and things like so for me. And then I joined the social media team and I've really, really enjoyed that. And I've got no social experience um myself, but it's a group very much about engaging everyone and letting everyone share their ideas. Teamwork makes the dream work. Like everybody, you know, we've all got strengths and weaknesses. Let's call on all of them to make this the best group that we can and support as many people as we can. And now here I am introducing myself as the head of mentoring. And I do that alongside another woman called Sarah. And we're about to launch a mentoring program called Building the Best You um, after half term, where Sarah and I have been allowed a complete blank canvas to come up with this program. So there are so many successes, I would say, that we've been able to even come with some challenges. Yeah, I mean, I guess I think what has made us succeed is kind of being aware of the structure or limitations of our group. So we're not the third sector. We're amateur neighbors helping neighbors. I think our success is that we know that and we're not trying to be professionals. We're not trying to do more than that. We're trying to see what we can do to meet the needs that we see in our community within those limitations. And I think the danger is in not being aware of those limitations and in trying to be something different. So, I mean, the government and to a lesser extent, the third sector were slow in responding, a week slow. Um, and I mean, it's natural. If the wrong person gets sick in a hierarchy, things fall apart. With us, we were able to do things differently. If now, while we have a chance to catch our breath, um, I feel like there is sometimes an impetus to try to set up ourselves to be more like the third sector or something, because that's what we know from history to be like, that's what works, that's what you're meant to do. Um, but I think that's danger because, um, yeah, by, by keeping it just to neighbors helping neighbors, the successes that uh, Kathy and Lily mentioned about the flexibility of volunteering, the dynamism of the skill pool of the volunteers, uh, we want to keep on to that, hold on to that. And I think part of that is in remaining true to the nature of the group as it, was, as it began. I think I think you've hit on some of the like some of the barriers where people may have wanted to get involved, um, but can't commit fixed amount of time on a regular basis. So I think that could be really really useful to note, and for people who who are inspired to then get involved. And just following from that, for people like me and listeners who have been really inspired by what you said in your groups, what three things would you want our listeners to do to? help support their communities th through COVID or even even otherwise? Good question. Um, I actually have been writing a, a, an article that I'll publish soon about the things that we've learned um, from our group. And I think if there are three things, it's, um, it's um, to remember that vulnerability is not a checklist. It's like the pandemic has definitely exposed a lot of cracks in the system and the care in social care in community care in all the different ways and i think it's um it's it's a good time for all of us to think about what is actually vulnerability and then who actually needs help and what kind of help that is um i think it's also quite important to think about um the care is a very emotional word it's like community care, social care. There is a word care in there. And it's actually supposed to be a very emotional thing and not very transactional. I think that um, if, um, if people always just have a little bit more kindness in their heart of thinking about what care actually means for the people around them, because a lot of our volunteers after doing this, now they are more outspoken to supporting people around them like knocking on the door of an old lady who left all her pill bottles out of her name and addresses on it for example you know it's like maybe you shouldn't do that um but you know to having has having that care and i guess the third one if you haven't you know joined a mutual aid group in your local area you know it's very easy to find your local mutual aid group i think it's very well covered in all around the country you should definitely join the mutual aid group in your local area to see if that there's anything that you can help with um, because I believe that all of the groups have done such amazing work and um, and we probably all of us um, we will need 
continuous help from the community to keep doing, you know, and continue the nice community care, regardless if there's a horrible pandemic and lockdown. I'd say very similar to Kathy. I was going to jump and say, I think, just be kind. I think if all of us are just kinder to each other and more patient with each other, I think if there's anything that we can take from the pandemic is that we don't need to be as rushed and living at such a fast-paced life and that we can still survive slower and being more patient with each other. Like, just simple things just to make our days nicer. Like, I know it's really simple and slightly off-subject, but in terms of, like, our busy rush hours now that we've detached from our rush hour maybe when we start going back to work we don't need to be so rushed we can wait the three minutes for the train and then it just makes everybody's days just that little bit nicer because it's not started dope let's get to work like everybody's been able to breathe a bit so hopefully we can take a bit of that and I agree with Kathy of joining um a mutual aid group I mean I think for me growing up volunteering there's like attachment to it that it's like Oxfam and it's like not very cool or something like that what I've seen in this volunteer base is there are so many people from so many different walks of life we've got teenagers right up to people in their 70s from all different walks of life professionals to people who are unemployed to business owners teenagers entrepreneurs bloggers casting directors so many different types of people have joined and I think to try and engage people to get them to understand that joining and helping is an investment in yourself in the community and in the world would be a great message to understand because it's not just you know it doesn't just have to be the boring volunteering that people might associate it with it is really exciting and you can learn so much and meet so many cool people and do so much and make a difference which I think is just the best ever. I guess I would just add um, one thing that people kept on mentioning during lockdown that they missed is just talking to people, talking to others and one thing that people in our group found really rewarding is also talking so I just say talk to people. I know it's England, we don't talk to each other, but just make an effort, talk to someone, someone you wouldn't normally speak to. And then, I mean, mutual aid is good, definitely join one, but it's one thing and it covers, uh, you know, food resilience and caring for people affecting, affected by Corona. But we are living surrounded by a thousand fires <laughs> and you guys touched on some, digital poverty, um, there's joblessness, homelessness, uh, mental health, is a huge one. Just do something. I mean, it's something that you care about. Everyone must care about something decent. Everyone. So just put effort into it because now's the time. Before Corona, people were reticent about volunteering. Before Corona, if you want to volunteer for Oxfam, Oxfam has like a team working for them. And you would have to kind of like sign up to what Oxfam wants to do. And then you'd have to kind of get along with the team. And if you don't, then you go do something else or Corona, it's, it's different. Everything's changed. And the previous barriers that existed to prevent you from doing whatever it is you feel like you could or want to do, they're not as strong or they're not even there. So just do it. Try it. Something that I think this group really inspires me, I think it's really overwhelming because I think such a small concept of standing outside a supermarket and asking for donations and then redistributing it. So that's, you can sum it up in a sentence, asking for donations and redistributing it. Such a simple concept. And they've applied that exact same concept to three different areas in the community that's had such an impact. And I did a presentation to a group of 16 to 17 year olds about DLAG and social action and trying to engage them. And I thought that it was really an important message to get across not just to young people just to anyone because you can be 30 or 40 and have an idea and you might not know where to start but just start like what Blake was saying just start somewhere because it can be a really small idea and you have no idea where that's going to go I'm sure the three guys that started Don's Local Action Group had no idea that six months down the line we would have been able to have the impact that we have had so just start if it's something small just start and do it and it would be worth it I think and one final question. Um, so considering all the challenges 2020 has raised across society, uh, what makes you hopeful for the future? Well, I think everything we have talked about is what makes us hopeful for the future, because um, even in a very horrible pandemic time, people are still kind. And then there's still a lot of kindness um, in so many different ways. The volunteers, the community doing the donation and all the 
you know, power that the community actually has and the kindness that you, people have shown. I think that in itself is hope enough to know that, you know, that things could actually be different. And even in the grimmest time that we have all these amazing people, all the amazing volunteers and all the amazing people doing all the things that you could do. I think that's very, very nice. And it's, um, the, a nice shot of hope for humanity going forward. I mean, I'm a super optimistic person, as it is anyway. I live glass half full type of uh, outlook on life. And I just believe that if we continue to talk and share our thoughts and opinions, we can trickle all our thoughts and everything we learn down into the next generations and hopefully continue to bring up better and happier generations that will keep being kind and helpful and thoughtful and considerate, creating a happy, better world. My group is the silver lining. It always has been throughout um, lockdown. It's, it's a very diverse group and not as big as either of yours. We have maybe 250 people. It's a lot to us. And it's very, uh, very, very diverse. Just different people that would probably not all get along if you put them in the same room. But um, on WhatsApp, when they were united to, to meet needs, they all got along and organized efficiently. It was very heartwarming consistently to see people jumping over each other to try to help in any way they could. Thank you. Thank you all for sharing your stories with us, Kathy, Lily and Blake. It's been really, really heartwarming and inspiring to hear about your experiences and to be honest, the, the great work you and, and your groups are doing. I think one thing I really take away is that personal connectedness to your group, to the people in the community and the enriching nature, not only the help you're giving, but even to yourselves giving the help. So I think that's something to take away and think about. Um, so in, in addition to all the suggestions you've made for our listeners, our listeners can also check out covidmutualaid.org to find a local group near near them so that you can get involved as well. Thank you for listening. Our next episode will find us speaking with community organisers about a campaign to settle the immigration status of undocumented people in the UK, which would give them access to full participation in public life, in the economy and in their communities. This podcast series, A Moment of Change, is brought to you by On Purpose London, produced during the global COVID-19 pandemic of 2020 to shed light on some of the social and environmental issues that mattered most to them and that experienced turning points during this time of crisis. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review A Moment of Change on Apple Podcasts, since that helps new listeners to find us. Subscribe to the podcast either there or on Spotify or on Google Play. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.